Hello and welcome to Sea Change, a podcast series by the Scottish Fisheries Museum. This podcast asks a selection of the most knowledgeable people their thoughts on the current situations facing our seas and what they think the future looks like. Okay, um, so it's a lovely December afternoon and I'm here with Richard Shelton for one of our podcasts for Sea Change at the Scottish Fisheries Museum. Um, so just to kick us off, Richard, um, it would be great um, if you could explain a little bit about yourself and your life's work and yeah, why we're here speaking today, I guess. Well, I've had rather a, a varied career because I started at the Gatti Marine Laboratory in St Andrews and after that I got a job in England with the Minabag and Fish at the Lowestoft and Burnham Laboratory, so that was two laboratories in England. And then I had the chance to return to Scotland and spend a period at the Marine Laboratory in Aberdeen. And after that, um, I became research director of the... No, I'm wrong there. (laughs) Um, I've missed a stage out. I spent nearly 20 years running Scotland's Freshwater Fishery Laboratory at Pitlochry. And after that, I became research director of the Atlantic Salmon Trust. And nowadays... I'm just a research fellow at the Scottish Fisheries Museum. Well, that's a, yeah, like you say, a, a very varied uh, career and lots to share with us, I'm sure, as a result of that. Um, so our first question today is about how you have interacted with the seas in your various roles and in your research. Well, there, there are two main bits of interaction, really. One, and the one which taught me most, was going to sea with Scottish and English fishermen from all round Britain's coasts. And the furthest west I went was Rockwall, the furthest north was Spitsbergen, and the furthest south, where we ran into a Fort 11, was rounding Land's End. So uh, I've, I've really been all over the place. And uh, They're, of course, known as cruises, but they, of course, bear no relation to what most people think of as a cruise. All we ever saw was lots of grey water, which, of course, as sailors, we always called ogging. (laughs) Yes, not quite as um, tropical as one might think (laughs) when when, when one thinks of a cruise. Yes, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. So you have you have also been been all over, as as you say, and um, it would be great to find out a little bit about how, in your career, you have engaged the public um, in your research and the findings of your work and all that sort of thing. Well, there were two bits to the public in my career. One was the real public, um, talking to people at meetings and things and giving little lectures. But of course, the other f- sort of public that I came across were ministers, both Scottish and um, British ones. And in my experience, some were good at their job and some weren't. And it was totally unrelated to their political party. <laughs> there you go. An, an interesting insight for sure. <laughs> um, and so our next question is going to give you a bit of a chance to tell us what you think, you know, is... Uh, is the most important sort of issue or issues um, facing our seas. It would be great to know how your work has broadened your understanding of the issues that our seas face. Well, I mean, the Earth is very much a blue planet. It seems 
to be the only one within easy reach which does have seas. And uh, all the evidence is that life began in the sea and latterly we've begun to realise that things called grey smokers, which are a sort of volcanism, little volcanoes under the sea, which have an incredible flora and fauna associated with them. And when I say flora, I'm talking about uh, bacteria, which form the base of a curious food chain. And it looks as though that's where life started. And uh, as for interacting with the public, I, well, I think we've come to the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, absolutely. So you, you say that... that um yeah life sort of began in our in our seas and i think that's that's absolutely a key a key thing that perhaps people won't know that maybe alludes to a question that we might ask you later um what sort of issues have come up in your your work um and, and in your research that you think are the most sort of pertinent to our well, seas uh, there are there are several um Initially, I was involved in understanding problems of marine pollution, mm. and uh, that was extremely interesting because it followed on from the loss of the Torrey Canyon, and so I was involved with oil pollution and a variety of other sorts. And that's come back uh, to bite us in a way, because as you know, there is an enormous industry off the Scottish coast of rearing salmon in coastal waters. And they generate as much pollution as at least 9 million people wow. in places very poorly adapted to disperse it. But uh, the rest of my work was really involved with controlling the interaction between fishing boats and their crews and the populations of fish and shellfish they depend on. Mm. And that's a very interesting area because there were fish and shellfish in the sea long before there were people and long before there were any fishing boats and a modern fishing vessel is a very very powerful predator in an environment not adapted to cope with it so it's essential therefore that governments regulate the activities of these large predators and we've really had rather little success in doing it here on the fourth um, a long time ago the oyster fisheries were depleted to the point of collapse. Same happened with the herring. The same has happened with fish of the cod family. And uh, that has had one beneficial effect in that predation by fish, particularly of cod themselves, on young lobsters is much less than it was. So we now have uh, more young lobsters, uh, but less of everything else. And the fisheries of the fourth now are largely dependent on fishing for prawns with relatively small low-tech vessels. And that's a great sadness, really. And uh, the same story you can see all over. And the proof uh, that um, sensible control of fishing uh, is beneficial is, of course, the effect of the two world wars, where, following both the First and the Second World Wars, there was a great increase in fish populations around Britain and for a time they supported quite um, virulent and bonanza-like fisheries. But sadly, um, that success has been wasted. And one of the most difficult situations nowadays is the practice of uh, quota management, which involves 
uh, fishermen having to discard large numbers of fish at sea. They sink to the bottom of the sea, most of them. Some are eaten by birds, but most sink to the bottom of the sea, where potentially they are prey for Atlantic grey seals, whose numbers are now at record levels, where they are also, of course, preying on the remaining living fishes. So it's not a particularly good picture. Now, the hope is that um, after we leave the EU, that more of the fishing resource will be available to Scotland. Just how well that will turn out, only time will tell. The EU, for all its faults, has actually been quite effective in some ways in controlling fishing mortality. Whether a domestic government, sensitive to the immediate wishes of skippers, will do the same thing, only time will tell. Mm. Yeah, no, that absolutely is. It's, it's a... It's a, a time of uncertainty in, in many ways, isn't it? Um, I am really interested in the concept of the fishing vessel as predator um, and how that impacts on, on our seas. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? That would be excellent. Well, at the end of the day, uh, the, the marine ecosystem is highly complex. And when you start to disturb it in fairly drastic ways, as fishing does... The results can be very difficult to predict and that's what lies behind in many ways our relative lack of success in regulating the fisheries. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing and you have to always bear in mind that fishing is a business. Fishermen don't fish for fish, they fish for money and often the unit value of fish increases when their numbers are depleted because there are fewer of them. And that means that fishermen are able still to make money even when the resource they're fishing on is seriously depleted. Mm, absolutely. Well, absolutely, that, that makes complete sense. It, it is a business and, and, and it wouldn't exist otherwise, I guess, in, in this, on the scale that it, that it does. Um, also on the grey seal population, that's very interesting. Um, how, how, how long have we been facing that issue? Um, oh, well, we've really been facing it since the... I would say the 1960s, right. uh, but of course they're at, at this record level now, mm. and they're perfectly beautiful animals, and we all like to see them, but mm -hmm. you can have too much of a good thing, mm. and uh, large populations of grey seals and powerful fishing boats are both of them knocking a few spots off the marine ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely, well, that, 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 makes, that makes sense. Um, what sort of... Me measures would you suggest might 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 help us control this this gray well, seal population well for a start not discarding large numbers of dead mm. and dying fish at sea that that would have to be the first thing sure um but it's difficult because fish are controlled by regulation species by species and so you can be in a situation where you still have an open opportunity an open quota say to land whiting or haddock, but not cod or another species. So what fishermen do, of course, is chuck the ones for which they don't have a quota over the side. So that immediately causes worries as far as the, the seals are concerned. Absolutely. So they're, they're, they're getting a free, a free dinner, really, aren't they? So the fishermen would say, well, some people say, well, look, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall would say, bring all the fish back. 
and don't discard any, and that's of course a counsel of perfection because the the number of fish that are marketable is really often quite a small proportion of the total catch. So if you had to land everything, you would need a different sort of fishing boat with lots of storage capacity. And the question would then arise, what do you do with the fish when you've got them? Mm. One option would be to go in for the Eastern European approach of having factory trawlers where you process the unmarketable fish into meal. Uh, but that's never been a British tradition and we, would be anathema, I think, to our fishermen. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. One of one of the things that um, in previous conversations with yourself I've found so interesting to hear is the sort of increasing awareness of what fish feel. Um, I wondered whether you might be able to say a few words about that. Yes, well, fish are fellow vertebrates. Um, we ourselves are vertebrates. And uh, our, our fish's swim bladder is modified lung. Um, our ear openings are modified gear openings, hmm. uh, ear openings, and and our lower jaws, of course, are modified gill arches. So we're all fish, really, under the skin. Hmm. And there's increasing evidence, particularly well summarised in a book by uh, Jonathan Balcom. It's a book called What a Fish Knows. And you realise that actually fish are capable of doing a lot of remarkable things. They're quite capable of learning. Some of them are quite capable, apparently, of solving problems. And all of them appear to, to be aware of unpleasant stimuli and almost certainly can feel pain. So these are disturbing things to know, really. And I would be the first to say that fish and fishing are very important to Britain and particularly to Scotland, and I would hate uh, fishing not any longer to be on the menu, but we have to be aware that fish are sentient beings. Absolutely, I think that's that's key, and the book that you mentioned is, is a very, very interesting reader. I have read it myself. Um, and one of the things that you had um, spoken about um, previously was the, the impact of sea lice on salmon, um, and I wonder if you could Tell me a little bit about yes. that. Yes, well, sea lice occur naturally in the Atlantic, um, and they don't do any particular harm in the open sea until recently. And nowadays, there is an enormous industry, both in Norway and in Scotland, rearing uh, salmon in cages, and they're fed large quantities of uh, fish meal-based diet. And when the fish are confined in this way, sea lice numbers built up, build up to an enormous extent and the first fish to suffer were the wild sea trout and salmon that go anywhere near the fish farms from the clouds of sea lice larvae that come away from them. But now the sea lice problem is so serious that they're actually killing the fish in the cages uh, which are also liable to a range of unpleasant viral and uh, bacterial diseases. So it's an industry that um, people thought was going to be the answer to a maiden's prayer and has turned out to be a nightmare. We also have to worry about the fact that marine survival of salmon, wild salmon, is at a record low level. And uh, we don't entirely know why that is. Quite a lot of salmon escape from fish farms, carrying with them the diseases and parasites they had in the cages. 
and they mix with wild salmon in the Norwegian Sea and along the shellfish current. So whether or not um, fish farming activity has been responsible for much of the enhanced marine mortality of wild salmon, we don't know. It's not the only factor. I mean, marine climate has changed as well, but my suspicions are based on what I've seen of salmon in and out of cages. Mm, that's very, very interesting. Um, and clearly an issue that isn't easy to resolve either. None of these are, are they? <laughs> no, I mean, the industry is in such a bad way, of course, it may collapse anyway, so we just don't know. What we can be sure of is that the governments of Norway and Scotland have fallen down on the job in regulating them. Uh, Norway has had a better record than we have, but in Scotland it's been shocking. Mm, that's yeah, very interesting. And obviously you've got lots of experience in, in salmon research and and that, that, that comes across in, in how knowledgeably you speak about it. And um, I think that the issue of sea lice is a very very interesting one and I guess it ties into this idea of fish sentience and yes I mean you that. only have to look yeah. at a film of fish in the cages with their skin terribly scarred and stripped off and to see these poor creatures suffering it it's really heartbreaking to see absolutely it's a it's an interesting one to see how that how that will how it will resolve itself um are there any other issues that you feel we haven't covered that are particularly pertinent facing our seas at the moment or in the last 50 years or so? Or ones that you can see bubbling under the surface and that might... Well, I, I think we've covered pretty well all that my experience can mm. come up with. Um, one thing we've learned, I think, is how difficult it is to predict the effect of fishery changes. Uh, the marine ecosystem is highly complex and uh, it's affected not just by what we do but what the other species do and uh, above all what the climate does. So in thinking about the next few decades it's pretty much a blank sheet <laughs> and although <laughs> I've put down a few thoughts of my own or whether well, what might happen um, I think we have to take it all with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, that's about it, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think I think you've covered a lot of ground there, so that's 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 more than more than sufficient. Um, one of our next questions that we'd love for you to answer is, if you could tell someone something that they might not know about the sea, um, what might it be? Well, I think we've already talked about that. It, it the Earth is the way it is, and the reason it's got living organisms in it at all is because of the sea around us. Mm. And uh, for a long time, people thought the origin of life was possibly in fresh water or maybe even deep in the earth. But nowadays, the best guess is that it's associated particularly with volcanic activity uh, in the deep ocean. And everything else that followed uh, has taken place later. And the most remarkable thing for me is A, that life began, B, that some of these living creatures uh, eventually came onto land and were able to, to think, uh, think even about the origin of the universe. And at the end of the day, we're all just glorified fish anyway, so it's pretty extraordinary. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. What what a thought. I'm sure I'm sure most people have not considered themselves um, to be fish-like. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a, a very a very astute comment. Um, so our next question, sort of beginning to wrap up our discussion, is if our listeners are are listening into this podcast and thinking, what can I do to play my part? in shaping the future of our seas, what what would you recommend that they, they, well, they do? Well, first of all, to be very careful about the fish you buy. Mm. Don't buy farmed salmon and don't buy, buy fish that are endangered in, in any way, including tropical ones. Um, one of the things that happens, we were talking earlier, of course, about fish as a business. And some fish, and haddock are a good example, the size of brood years can vary by tens, in the case of haddock, by a factor of a hundred. So what can sometimes happen is that when you're fishing, you suddenly come across vast numbers of these young fish, which still can be landed, um, even with the most modern nets. And at the end of the day, there's no market for very small fish. So they have to go over the side now the snag with that is, these are the seed corn for the future, fish that could have maintained a fishery for them when they were bigger over many years. And so that's one of the bad aspects of fish as a business. But it is a business and there's no escaping that's what it is and always will be. Absolutely, yeah, no, that, that absolutely is the case, I'm sure. Um, and for our final question, um, it's, it's a big one. <laughs> um, We'd like to know where you think the seas will be in 50 years' time. It'll depend on whether we have any wars or not. <laughs> if we have um, major wars, then the fish will recover after each one of them. But all the evidence is that modern war is relatively short on any kind of large scale, and the fish need at least five, six or seven years to recover from over-exploitation. So assuming there are no wars, I think knowing the um, poor quality of fish regulation, fishery regulation in, his, in recent history, um, I don't hold out a great deal of hope. Um, it, it all depends on the resolution of governments. And governments are short-term, five-year things and they would rather dodge issues than actually confront them. And so I think we'll be bumping along the bottom for rather a long time. Mm, absolutely. It's, it, it, it seems as though it's an issue that needs to be dealt with, you know, from, from the, the very highest authority, yes. isn't it? Yes, it, it, it doesn't go well with ordinary democracy. I mean, the best... <laughs> The best sort of regulation would be some form of dictatorship, and God, <laughs> God preserve us from that. <laughs> Absolutely. Some, sometimes you've got to find a middle ground, yes. <laughs> perhaps. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's 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 a thought. It it it's a strange one to have to to try and guess where something will be in fifty years' time. Um, do you think we'll be catching the same sorts of fish? Do you think? Well, we'll... Um, it, it'll. Climate plays a big part in mm. the species composition of our seas. At the moment, we're going through a warming phase. We don't know how long that will last. Uh, but, for instance, 
there are a lot more bass around our coast than there used to be. There are red mullet in the channel. Um, there are boarfish in the North Sea. There are a lot more hake than there were. There are a lot fewer cod and haddock and whiting. And uh, mackerel at the moment are doing very, very well, but that probably won't last. And the same will probably apply to herring, but it's very difficult to predict because of the complexity of the marine ecosystem. Absolutely. And do you think that we'll see massive changes in the way that fishing vessels are are constructed or do you think? Well, there's always a steady process of um, sophistication in vessel and construction and gear construction. The highest tech vessels nowadays are the pelagic ones. These are the ones that fish for things like mackerel, herring and blue whiting. And with their modern equipment, they're able to locate and enclose shoals quickly and efficiently and can go on fishing at stock levels which are um, dangerous to the long-term future of the fishery. So those are the ones that, there aren't many of them, but the ones there are incredibly powerful. The demersal fishing vessels, that's ones that scrape their trawls along the bottom, uh, also are quite high-tech, but not in the same league as the pelagic ones. And uh, the least high-tech at the moment are the inshore shellfish vessels. But even they are using things like side-scan sonar to uh, localise places where they put their creels. Mm, absolutely. It's, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see where things head in the next few years. Um, and... Yeah, I would like to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and, and uh, research and life's work with us today, Richard. Um, I hope that it's brought some clarity to some of our listeners and that they've learned something new about our seas and that there is plenty food for thought there. So thank you very much for speaking with me today. It's been my great privilege, really. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sea Change, the Scottish Fisheries Museum podcast series that accompanies our exhibition of the same name, running from the 24th of January to the 21st of June 2020. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to Rob Kynick.